Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto or on many local radio community stations around the country or on a podcast platform. And uh, I am David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And we're your Green Majority hosts. Thanks for joining us this week. And we're going to discuss the latest IPCC report. And Stefan is going to be interviewing Sarah Buchanan the campaign's director of the Toronto Environmental Alliance, about the the IPCC report and its implications for how cities and suggestions for how cities can tackle climate change. And so we're just going to do some news now, and then Stefan and and then we're also going to discuss the IPCC report. Okay. So wildfires are continuing to rage around the world. As the United States Senate has had to take out most of the climate measures in their infrastructure bill, in order to get enough support from both parties. Nexus Media News reports that the Dixie Fire, which has become the largest wildfire in the history of California, burned 40,000 acres in a day last week, which means that it burned around one acre per second for 24 hours. The Dixie Fire has been moving so quickly that California's alert systems have not been able to keep up with it, and residents have been relying on spontaneous social media updates. There are around 20,000 people fighting wildfires in the U.S. right now, and over a quarter of those people are fighting the Dixie Fire, which has been burning for a month and could likely burn for several more weeks. And yet another heat wave has arrived to keep the country in the clutches of this relentless weather. Chile is also facing a severe drought, The over 50 wildfires that have been burning in Turkey are the hottest that country has ever seen. Recent wildfires in Algeria have killed at least 42 people, and the Prime Minister of Greece has now apologized for not responding well to their wildfires. Wildfires in Siberia, meanwhile, have sent smoke all the way to the North Pole for the first time in recorded history. A new study published in the journal Nature is indicating that the entire water circulation system in the Atlantic Ocean could be on the brink of tipping into a much weaker circulation pattern, thereby disrupting established climate patterns around the world. The system in question is the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC. Angela Dewan writes for CTV, quote, Global weather patterns are critically linked to the circulation, and its transport of heat and nutrients around the planet. A collapse of this system would result in significant and abrupt changes, including fast sea level rise, more extreme winters in Western Europe, and disruptions to monsoon systems in the tropics. The study reads, quote, Significant early warning signals are found in eight independent AMOC indices, based on observational sea surface temperature and salinity data from across the Atlantic Ocean Basin. The results presented here hence show that the recently discovered AMOC decline during the last decades is not just a fluctuation related to low-frequency climate variability or a linear response to increasing temperatures. Rather, the presented findings suggest that this decline may be associated with an almost complete loss of stability of the AMOC over the course of the last century, and that the AMOC could be close to a critical transition to its weak circulation mode. The really, really brief mention you made of the Dixie fires and how um, those municipalities or, or those jurisdictions, I guess, are having to rely on um, like ad hoc Twitter updates in order to get um, messages out to their citizenry uh, about evacuations and emergency measures and uh, because their their emergency response systems just aren't robust enough. And I'm sort of, (laughs) it's it's just, it adds another layer um, of sort of like horror to the story of climate catastrophe, because it's the realization that like, in addition to not funding and adequately researching and adequately initiating really robust adaptive plans for um, uh, like in terms of like national, provincial, 
regional and um and municipal like we don't have these adapt these these adaptive systems put in place in order to like respond to these big shifts in weather patterns and respond to these shifts in climate we also as a result haven't put enough money um and resourcing into emergency response measures and and this is to no fault of any of the um emergency response or, or first responders who are like working to try to save people's lives and relocate them and uh, provide them medical care and attention. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not holding individual firefighters and, and EMTs at fault here. What I am saying is that, um, because we haven't given enough attention and time to adaptation in the last couple decades, it also means that we don't have enough financing allocated for these emergency responses when you do get wicked, horrific forest fires, like what we're seeing on the West coast and in Northern Ontario. So, um, yeah, if is, as if we already weren't thinking about sort of like the horrors of climate change enough, this was just another reality check and another sort of signal that like, we are not prepared. We are not ready for what we're, for what's coming at us now, let alone what's going to be coming at us in the coming decades. We're going to get into that as we dig later into the hour. So like get stoked for that. To, to jump off of that point, because I think you're totally right, you know, one thing that the IPCC report that we'll get into talks about is how much climate change is already baked in and guaranteed. And, you know, for as much and for as little as our governments across the world have done in terms of mitigation, you know, in terms of trying to find ways to reduce emissions, it is arguable they have done even less in terms of adaptation. Because, you know, adaptation for at least sometimes felt in some ways, you know, like giving up. And so it wasn't exact, you know, it was never the sexiest thing to admit that you're going to have to deal with this because it also meant that you weren't investing enough. It was sort of tacitly admitting that you weren't investing enough in mitigation if you had to invest in adaptation. But at the same time, we're going to see 1.5, 1.6 minimum degrees. That's what the IPCC report basically came out and said, was that we will see at least 1.6 degrees of warming, and it could go back to, down with, like, basically if we do everything we possibly could at this one moment. And even that means that there are places across the world that desperately need significant adaptation measures, and we have to just accept that it's going to cost more money to even persist. So exactly like you were saying, Lauren, like, the Californian government is going to have to spend a lot more money on forest fires unless it wants this to be their lived reality for the rest of time. In reminder, currently the way that California manages this system is by using prisoners and paying them $2 a day. And so that's a whole other aspect uh, uh, in regards to having to actually take this problem and make it a real, to really invest in this problem. And you know, and we see this all over the place. You know, there's we are quite simply refusing to measure, you know, uh, to we're quite simply refusing to put the money in place in adaptive measures. And then when we do, even those things are being shown to be sort of, you know, not enough. You know, the examples of the seawalls that were currently being built in uh, to protect uh, Louisiana. They, you know, most people believe that the sea level rise will be high enough by 2023 to overwhelm those seawalls. And so that's a it's a billion dollar project that you've basically built to protect this coastline, um, which you've already allowed oil companies to completely destroy the wetlands that were previously doing this work for you. And yet you're still going to find yourself in the same position by 2025 when a big hurricane comes and, and these people that you were theoretically protecting these billion dollars of, sale, of of work have not actually been adequately protected. And that exists everywhere. And so when you think about a Green New Deal, it can't just be mitigation. It has to also be adaptation because, again, this is really baked in. No, I know. And like, this is me very much beating a dead horse here. But like, thinking about that example you gave of those seawalls in Louisiana, you said 2023 or like 2025 when a hurricane hits. Like, obviously we're all acutely aware of the fact that it's 2021, but like it's 2020. That's, that's like two years away. That's you hear 2021 or 2023. And it's like, Oh, that's the future. No, it's not. It's now it's tomorrow. It's yesterday. Like, <laughs> the future is now, my friends, and I don't mean that in a fun way. 
during my my two, two weeks of vacation that I just got back from, and thank you to the two of you for holding it down, the um, I read a book called Hummingbird, Sal- Hummingbird Salamander, which is sort of based in a semi-dystopian sort of near future in which never do they get entirely exactly how society is, cr- is cracking down, but you do get like, oh, there's a forest fire here, the sun, you know, there's a haze now go all the time. And it was written, you know, it came out this year. Um, and so he was, would have been having right in the last couple of years. But sort of even that little bit about like how there's always a haze now feels a little too real in a world where there's always a haze now during forest fire season. That now is starting early and earlier. Oh, while you were gone, I fully just like rambled last week for 10 minutes about Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler because it's like back in the 90s, she predicted like almost exactly what we were going to be experiencing right now. There's literally like an American president who takes over who uses the phrase make America great again. She wrote it in 1997. Anyway, so yeah, I won't I won't ramble again because I'm sure it was pretty brutal to have to listen to last week. But yeah, yeah. And so the only other thing on the last piece of news before we get into the IPCC, because that is the bulk of the show, um, is that last bit about the, the, the Gulf Stream collapsing or the part of the you know, Gulf Stream is a part of the AMOC is one of these things which I, you know, that's one of the examples of these tipping points in which so much of these other climate change things, you know, do slowly get worse, right? You see, there's a few more forest fires. There's a few more uh, hurricanes. And these things become, you know, they slowly build on you, but they're not. And then you experience one. It's like, it's horrific. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to apply, you know, extreme weather at all, obviously. But the, the Gulf Stream is one of these things where it's like, people will keep warning about it collapsing. And then one day it won't be here. And we, you can't get it back. It's not a thing where we get like, and and the, and, the, and the dates here are saying it's like between, it could be 10 years, could be 20 years, could be 200 years. They don't exactly know, but like, it's one of these things where it's like, but we should be doing absolutely everything we can to avoid this because we cannot go back from this one. Mm-hmm. And this probably isn't a helpful thing for me to bring up, but just because we were talking about sci-fi, again, for people who were around and watching movies in the 90s, the day after tomorrow, the premise whereby like all of North America is is thrown into a deep freeze ice age, the idea is the Gulf Stream collapses. Um, and like that somehow makes it so that New York is covered in 50 feet of snow. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But it's still bad news. And it's not like Dennis Quaid in a park of bad news, but it's still bad news. Yeah, it's just, well, London and England might be in parkas because their latitude is actually closer to Canada's. It is the Gulf Stream that's just keeping them warm. So New York, maybe not. London, parkas. They're even less well-prepared to deal with snow than New Yorkers are. So, like, gird your loins, people. <laughs> well, sorry, that was a gross phrase. My bad. <laughs> All right, now we're going to go to a short break and come back talking about the IPCC report. <laughs> Climate Change Authority in the United Nations, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has released its sixth full report on the physical understanding of the climate system and climate change and what it implies for the future. The climate report brings together the tens of thousands of scientific studies that have been released since the last such report in 2013. As Zoya Tierstein puts it for Grist, quote, the IPCC report, which compiles all of the latest scientific research on climate change and presents it in one massive assessment, has served as a wake-up call for policymakers and the public every time it has been published. 
as the wake-up call has gone largely unheeded, with little done globally to rein in emissions, the IPCC's main takeaways have grown increasingly dire with each successive assessment. This year, the report's authors delivered one of their bleakest messages yet. Climate change is baked into our immediate future, and the window of opportunity to do something about how bad its effects can be is closing fast. The report itself reads, quote, With every additional increment of global warming, changes in extremes continue to become larger. For example, every additional half degree Celsius of global warming causes clearly discernible increases in the intensity and frequency of hot extremes, including heat waves and heavy precipitation, as well as agricultural and ecological droughts in some regions. The media release that they put out reads, quote, The report projects that in the coming decades, climate changes will increase in all regions. For 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming, there will be increasing heat waves, longer warm seasons, and shorter cold seasons. At 2 degrees Celsius of global warming, heat, heat extremes would become would more often reach critical tolerance thresholds for agriculture and health, the report shows. But it is not just about temperature. Climate change is intensifying the water cycle. This brings more intense rainfall and associated flooding, as well as more intense drought in many regions. Climate change is affecting rainfall patterns. In high latitudes, precipitation is likely to increase while it is projected to decrease over large parts of the subtropics. Changes to monsoon precipitation are expected, which will vary by region. Coastal areas will see continued sea level rise throughout the 21st century, contributing to more frequent and severe coastal flooding in low-lying areas and coastal erosion. Extreme sea level events that previously occurred once in 100 years could happen every year by the end of this century. Further warming will amplify permafrost thawing and the loss of seasonal snow cover, melting of glaciers and ice sheets, and loss of summer Arctic sea ice. Changes to the ocean, including warming, more frequent marine heat waves, ocean acidification, and reduced oxygen levels have been clearly linked to human influence. These changes affect both ocean ecosystems and the people that rely on them, and they will continue throughout at least the rest of this century. For cities, some aspects of climate change may be amplified, including heat, since urban areas are usually warmer than their surroundings, flooding from heavy precipitation events, and sea level rise in coastal cities. UN Secretary uh, General Antonio Guterres said in a press release, quote, Today's IPCC Working Group 1 report is a code red for humanity. The alarm bells are deafening and the evidence is irrefutable. Greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuel burning and deforestation are choking our planet and putting billions of people at immediate risk. Global heating is affecting every region on Earth, with many of the changes becoming irreversible. We are at imminent risk of hitting 1.5 degrees Celsius in the near term. The only way to prevent exceeding this threshold is by urgently stepping up our efforts and pursuing the most ambitious path. We must act decisively now to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius alive. We are currently at 1.2 degrees Celsius and rising. Warming has accelerated in recent decades. Every fraction of a degree counts. Greenhouse gas concentrations are at record levels. Extreme weather and climate disasters are increasing in frequency and intensity. The solutions are clear. Inclusive and green economies, prosperity, cleaner air, and better health are possible for all if we respond to this crisis with solidarity and courage. So let me start with one of the things about this report that breaks my brain. And it's maybe, it's not even in the report itself. It's actually how this report comes to be, which is that for this report to come, 195 countries have to sign off on this report. So that means nearly every government in the world, not everyone, but nearly every government if, uh, of a nation in the world, um, or in the nations that United Nations understands as nations, which is obviously still a subset, but the ones with most power, have accepted that what is written in, what Dave just said is the truth. This means 
that no leader of any of these countries can pretend that they do not understand what is at stake. Their country, their government has signed off on this report, which states unequivocally that this is human caused, that it's carbon and methane, you know, that these are coming from, you know, these fossil fuel issues and fossil fuels uh, companies and, and everything else. And yet what we see coming out of it still is paltry. You know, like two days after this report was released and two days after Biden tweets out about how climate change must be addressed, he then begs OPEC to increase oil production to allow the economy to continue or whatever. It's it's beyond parody that this is where we live, that we can have every major government in the world come out and say, yes, we are destroying the planet. We know exactly why. We have to do a lot better, but we're not going to. And that's where we're stand. Yeah. Well, and to like, and like further to your point initially, like emphasizing the idea that like a hundred, what is it? 195 countries have to sign off on this. Like the language as, as extreme as it sounds and as scary as it reads is relatively speaking, pretty conservative. And I don't necessarily mean that like conservative in a Tory way. I mean, conservative as in like restrained, like if everybody is signing off on this language, every country, every scientist, because it's a hell, a heck, a hell of a lot of scientists. I can say hell on air. That's fine. Um, it's like, we are so certain of these numbers. We are so certain of these scenarios that nobody is going against it. So like, that's the thing. Somebody who's hearing us talk about this or, or maybe just like reading a passing article might be like, well, didn't we already know this? Didn't we already know that things were bad? Didn't we already know that we're probably going to hit 1.5? And it's like, well, yes, these are things that have been posited by various models or various scenarios or various studies that have been put out. But when it comes to an IPCC report, what that means is like every, like this is the consensus. This isn't one report here and there. This is like no, this is the standard. This is what everybody agrees to. This is fact. This is in all likelihood, almost definitely going to play out this way um, in one of the like what five scenarios they present. Um, so, so that's why reports like this are such a big deal. Like literally I had my partner asked it. He's like, didn't another, didn't a big report just come out? Like, what's this new big report? Why does this one matter? And it's like, well, this is why it matters because this is, this is the one that's giving us our, our scientifically backed scenarios and presenting us with like one of these five ways is most likely how it will play out. And this is the, these are the odds that it's going to play out this way from a percentage standpoint. Um, and it's, it's the consensus that makes reports like this out of the IPCC so important. So this is, I think, if I'm correct, this is like the first of three um, IPCC reports that are going to come out. So so future ones on, on adaptation and mitigation are also coming as well in the next couple of years, I believe. Um, so yeah, that's why everybody is so up in arms about this. Um, and something that was sort of like, I don't know, one of the many hot takes, because there have been so many that have come out over the last couple of days, but one that like specifically one of my internationally focused colleagues brought to my attention today was um, sort of this idea that like, okay, so the 1.5 degree, um, this report states unequivocally that we're going to hit 1.5 degrees by 2040, sometime within 2021 and 2040. So, so within the next 20 years, basically, what that means is if we're going to have a, um, like a 50% chance of like remaining of like going no higher than that, of keeping it at that 1.5 scenario, which is like the best case scenario. Um, and we're going at that with like a 50% chance of us keeping it at that 1.5 degrees, our carbon budget is going to be exhausted in 11 and a half years. And then if you want that chance to go up to, to a 67% chance of keeping that 1.5 degree threshold, which is what everybody agrees is like the upper limit of safety for millions of people, for billions of people, that carbon budget runs out in nine years. So that means that like, I don't know, a couple of years ago when everybody started saying we have until the end of the decade to get our butts in gear and everybody was kind of backpedaling and being like, no, 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 that doesn't mean we have to totally phase out within 10 years. We have time, we have time, we have time. We don't. 
it's 11 and a half years to give us a 50% chance of staying at 1.5 degrees. Yeah. And that's no time. That's, that's, that's done. The budget is exhausted. It is my credit card balance. She's straining at the seams. <laughs> and, and not only that, something I think that is also quite important is that anything we do right now is any reductions we get right now is doubly effective, right? Because we're not we're like, if, if we all started reducing emissions tomorrow, that means that you don't have five or six more years of increasing emissions. So, so often there's these things of like, well, we got to let it go a little bit longer and then we'll peak at this point. No, this we peak needs to be 2019. That needs to be peak. Like, the of of because we're continually raising more emissions into this and with all of this doom and gloom though i do think one other thing has to be stressed which is uh, a bit of a shame on how the media parts of the media reported on this news which was there was a certain number of people who took this to be okay give up like there was a, there was an overwhelming uh subset of people who just want to come out and be like look it says that we already reached 1.6. It probably means we reached over two. So we shouldn't even bother trying. It's over. Or or at least that we're going to get that kind of missions. And that is one of the most effective ways to convince people that action is impossible. And it also is the most dangerous thing you can say because it means that you're basically dooming future people to five degrees. The difference between five degrees and four, even though you want to hit neither of those, is huge. Like any single piece of carbon in percentage of carbon, uh, percentage of a degree, every single molecule of carbon or methane and every 0.1 degree you can keep out of the atmosphere or into the warming is saving lives. Every single one. And so, you know, it doesn't matter if we get 2.2. That's if it means we don't get 2.5 because we took every action we can right now, that's worth it. Every action is worth it because every little amount we reduce is going to save lives. Yeah. And, and more so to that point and counter to the doom and gloom argument, like we know what we have to do. We know what needs to be done. We've known it forever. We've said it a million times on this podcast. So like, I won't belabor the point, but like, there are no shortage there. There is no shortage rather of brilliant solutions and incredible people working incredibly hard to bring those solutions to fruition. So like we do not need to languish in despair though. If you need to do that, that's fine too. Cause that sometimes happens. And like, yeah, I was fully like catatonic for most of Monday. Cause I just like, couldn't do it. Couldn't handle it. But like, there is hope and there is always hope. And like you said, Stefan, like every single degree matters. So even if we blow past 1.5, that doesn't mean you throw up your hands and go home because 1.5 or 1.6 is a hell of a lot better than two degrees or 2.5 or whatever, like you said. Um, so it's, it's okay to be glum. It's okay to be sad it's not okay to throw up your hands and go home necessarily. Yeah, and and don't let that be the reason for your acceptance of other people saying, well, you know, what's a little bit more, right? Like the the level of which, like, so like this report, it's designed not even really to be a, it's not designed to be a public communication tool. That's not why the IPCC reports started. They started because if you're having a gigantic negotiation of 195 countries, you all have to sort of agree on what's true before you can have that negotiation, right? It is literally just setting a baseline for the conversations that are being set out in front of, uh, front of these leaders who are all going to show up at COP later this year. And so that means that this is the baseline where they will all now start discussing what it means, which means every single nation, every single person in every single nation that can influence the government in some way has the, I'm going to go with duty if you have the means to try to push your government to act like this is true. They've accepted, the government has accepted it's true. You know, it's not like it's not true. Like the 
the the Trudeau government here in in Canada did not come out and say, well, the IPCC report, we don't totally think it's think it might be not as bad. No, they came out and said, yeah, it'll be really hard. That's why we bought a pipeline to fund our actions, which, you know, I don't think I need to make it clear that we disagree on this show with such an assertion, but this is the type of thing that has to get pushed back on. Every little piece, you know, the same day that this report came out, the uh, Ferry Creek uh, blockades were raided and the headquarters was raided as the, this was being released, basically, at the exact same time. And every time, every every minute that those trees are saved is another minute that we are not increasing that extra warming in the atmosphere. You know, every time we block one or two, one or two or the rest of all fossil exploration is the mo- is an, is is saving another you know 0.001 degrees. And so every action you're doing and every way you can do those types of things are all building up to make the job of the future easier, really. And that's all we can do now is trying to make our current job is a huge task in front of us. And but everything we every success, success now means that the burden on our on ourselves later on our children and our children's children will be lesser. Absolutely, and like part and parcel to that, another reason that we really really need to push back on like the the doomsaying arguments that we're seeing pop up um with this report is is because like and and i know i'm constantly like running around like a chicken with its head cut off freaking out about the like the specter of eco-fascism as it hangs over us but like really it's when you get those like it's when you it's when you get those doom saying points about climate where like okay whatever there's no point or like it it can really easily sway into like scary aggressive violent really uh, like hardcore right-wing talking points because that's when you get into like freaky nationalism and freaky closed borders and people really battening down the hatches and focusing inward and ignoring like the collective struggle and how we need to like what what reports like this tell us aren't that we need to be defensive and freaked out about other people it means that we need to like really emphasize systems of care and community because that's the only way we're going to get through it is together um, so like, yeah, please don't let yourself be taken in by like, by, by, yeah, by like scary conservative doomsayers who like are finally interested in climate because it means they can further their like fascist agenda, fascist, fascist, racist classes agenda. I don't know if we're going to find a better way to end it. So we'll end it there uh, and we'll come back with Sarah Buchanan talking about the IBCC report some more, but really specifically cities and how cities can take it. What is we now at the Brother West? Everybody up for sale. Everything is up for sale. Just offer enough money and I can rearrange the narrative in order for me to gain access to the position. That's called selling your soul for a mess of pottage. And sellout is very real. It's possible to have deep sincerity and have disagreement. You say what you mean and you mean what you say and be wrong. That's different. That's why Malcolm X never sold out. Malcolm X said, white people are devils. How come you say that, Malcolm? Because I believe it. Then he came back. I was wrong. Too many white brothers and sisters have devilish behavior. You right about that. But he wouldn't sell out no matter what the claim was because he said what he meant and he meant what he said. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found. All the links to what we've covered in the show can be found at greenmajority.ca, as well as a place to listen to the show if you want to get more information. I'm Stephen Hostetter, and I'm stoked to be joined once again uh, by Sarah Buchanan, who previously we spoke, we, you were with Environmental Fence, but you are the new campaigns director at the Toronto Environmental Alliance, here to chat about cities and the IPCC report that just was released. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Stefan, even if I'm wearing a different hat. It's a great hat. All hats are nice hats, especially in the climate world. Similar hat. It just looks a bit different. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Slightly different perspective on the world. Speaking of that perspective, though, we spent most of the earlier part of this show chatting about this quite dire warning that the IPCC has released. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what stood out from that report on Monday? What are you taking away? Because those of us who've been in climate are not terribly surprised by this, but there's always something a little different, a little new with each person's perspectives. What stood out was there's a bit of a difference from the previous big alarm call IPCC report a few years ago in that this report focused a little more than the previous one did on what has been baked in already. What kind of impacts we're already feeling and will feel coming up on the horizon in terms of extreme weather for cities that cities like Toronto, that really means lots more heat, lots more extreme flooding. And so that the report discussed that and acknowledged that there's some degree of baked inness of that, but at the same time, it also drove home that we still have room to take a lot of action to, to slow down and to choose the Canada and the maps they provide that doesn't have as much angry red on it, to choose the Canada 50 years from now or 30 years from now that has a lot less of that angry red. So it's a two-pronged report for me. It's watch out, this stuff's coming, and make a plan to urgently deal with what's already coming at us. And at the same time as you're making that plan, double down on the plans you already have to cut your carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a real it's a real kick in the butt to a lot of policymakers. Do what they're doing a whole lot faster. Stop arguing over how to dot the I's and cross the T's and have these real conversations across party lines that need to happen to do this stuff quickly. Because otherwise we're going to be in an even worse situation. And I, I think the timing of it too is important coming hopefully close to the end of a pandemic where we're rebuilding uh, a lot of the, the fabric of our society in many ways. So it's landing at a time when we're already thinking about how we can restructure parts of how we live to build back better is the phrase a lot of folks are using. So it's, it's another alarm call that to really roll in a lot of those climate considerations as we're building back better. And, and also considerations about things like housing and all the other crises that are facing cities, roll that into climate action too. Yeah, I think that's a, a great summation, especially with the, the piece of that baked in. It really speaks also to the necessity of, of adaptation as well as mitigation. And especially in terms of things like, I know the T's worked on in terms of the stormwater charge, which perhaps we can get to later on in the interview of, hey, guess what? It's not just enough to reduce emissions at this point. You also have to be prepared for more and more extreme weather. Mm -hmm. And so pivoting towards more in the direction of sort of the work that UNT is focusing on in regards to cities more generally, where do you see the biggest areas of need and areas of opportunity when it comes to cities addressing climate change? And I guess for this context, it can be either Canadian cities, given our limitations within our municipal code, but also maybe cities globally. Yeah, it's interesting. We're, we're already seeing at the Toronto specific level, starting to see a combination every council meeting of some reports that deal with cutting emissions and then some motions or reports that are coming out of emergencies, like real flooding emergencies. There was one that came to council in July about how tenants deal with extreme heat when they don't have air conditioning. So our, we're already seeing at the city level they're starting to connect the climate dots between protecting people from the impacts of climate change and cutting our, our carbon emissions. I think a lot of cities right now are struggling with both sides of that coin of how to do that. And I think for a lot of cities, maybe they have thought a little bit more about the mitigation side than the resilience side. Toronto got a resilience strategy together in 2019. Hasn't really kicked off much, and I think that's going to need to be accelerated for sure. I think a lot of cities are also thinking about who is impacted by this most and trying to get integrated into their strategies that question of how do we protect the people who are most impacted by climate change, who are, who are literally feeling that heat more in neighborhoods where, for example, there's fewer trees, more vertical communities where people might not have air conditioning but be on the you know 20th floor of a tower. And how do we protect people from those impacts? And how do we protect people also from the, the very real costs that happen when, say, your basement gets flooded or you don't have a basement or you don't have a home and you're, you're homeless and are so much more impacted by extreme weather? So cities are grappling with that as well, how to protect the most vulnerable residents. If they aren't grappling with it, they absolutely should be. And then the, the other side there is just how to fund it. 
how to fund all this action, what kind of revenue tools can be used. We are definitely fans of uh, stormwater charge. You briefly alluded to that, of trying to recognize that some of the polluters who are creating some of these problems or adding to these problems should help pay for for addressing them. And so a lot of cities have been contemplating revenue tools to fund them. Toronto's been talking about a stormwater charge for years and not doing it. It's time to get serious about having good, solid revenue tools that will fund addressing the climate emergency because we're, we're not going to have the money to do it otherwise. And charging a big pavement, I like to call them, for having huge parking lots and not contributing anything to how stormwater is dealt with in the city. And simply adding a, a charge in to help with that could bring in hundreds of millions of dollars to the city budget. So I think we need to get started on tools like that to fund both protecting us from the impacts and cutting our emissions as well. I'm glad that you bring that up because I think one of the biggest things that I learned earlier on when I was looking into sort of the question of how the cities, especially at least Ontario and Toronto specifically, could deal with climate change things. A thing that I didn't know that I learned was the fact that cities can't run deficits in a sort of normal way. And so that without new revenue tools, they li- they literally will end up automatically having less money to pay for things. As inflation increases, we are constantly have slightly less money unless new revenue tools are found, really. And and that is in contrast with a provincial or federal government, which can pull out money, go into debt to fund these things and actually accept that they are going to pay for it in other ways. Cities are so much more limited in that way. And I thought that was a very useful and important thing to understand when thinking about how cities can tackle the climate change because they are so limited in that function. And I should also say, cities can't be the only ones paying uh, for for climate change, either mitigation or cleaning up after storms, for example. There has to be more help from other levels of government too. The truth of it is the province and, and the federal government, they have so much more access to these bigger revenue tools that the heavy hitters really, for example, a wealth tax. I know folks have been talking about that right now. Cities just can't do that. They don't have the the jurisdiction to do that, but that could just bring in huge amounts of money. And are we at the point where we need to think about how stopping someone from buying one more yacht is that in order to be able to fund one of the biggest crises we've ever faced and and address that. I think that, yeah, asking someone to not buy one more yacht is probably reasonable given the scale of what we're facing. But cities don't have the power to do that. So they do have the power to implement a whole other range of revenue tools that are, you know, exciting and, and interesting to contemplate. Maybe just exciting to me. I don't know. But when you think about it, the real root here is how do we find things that help incentivize solutions to the problem at the same time as funding those solutions. There's a lot of other tools that the city has with varying levels of success use. They used to have a vehicle registration tax and it was canned a while back. And there's you know, other ways of, of thinking about it. Of if there's a problem, for example, and people are buying vehicles that are huge and polluting a lot and impacting air quality, big pickups and SUVs who maybe don't need to be buying those. Maybe there's a way the city can have a revenue tool that, that targets these and incentivizes a shift to smaller or, or less polluting vehicles. Yeah, these are just some of the ways that can be funded. I was going to suggest this, that the city start its own game show called Yacht or Not, in which they decide whether or not your yacht is more important than whatever else you get to do with that money. But uh, that something idea. tells me, yeah, we'll send it with John Tory. I'm sure he and his likely two yachts will have an opinion. <laughs> but I do think that piece about revenue tools and then these difficulties does highlight something I think I would love for to get your opinion on a little bit more, which is what the you would say the greatest misconceptions are about how the public understands a city's role is within climate change and how it really is. Because so often the reasons why something is getting done or other things has to do with jurisdictional or, or other pieces of thing that people don't entirely understand. So I'm curious if you could clean up one misunderstanding that people often have about a city's role specifically, what would it be? Wow, that's tough. Most people don't think about jurisdiction. They just think about who do I call when my garbage doesn't get picked up? Or who do I send my taxes to? Or how much are, the, are those taxes? The intricacies of who has jurisdiction for what level of government. It's not really an active conversation for most people. 
nor necessarily should it be. I think people often think about the city as handling a lot of the the literally concrete things that are in front of them on a daily basis, like roads, sidewalks, garbage, waste, and not so much having a proactive role in solving problems. And I would say that the cities are uniquely positioned to come up with good local solutions to a lot of problems, climate change being one of them, other problems, for example, poverty, homelessness as well, because a lot of those impacts of those problems come out most acutely in ways that the city ends up dealing with. For example, cleaning up after storms, when we're talking about climate change, rebuilding uh, bridges that were washed away in floods. I think that this, people often don't see the city as like a problem-solving level of government, but I think that, that the city absolutely can be. And I think that other levels of government will probably do well to talk about these experiences and how these can be worked into some of the solutions that are being provided. Awesome. And so... Let's dive in a little bit to some of those solutions specifically within your work with Toronto Environmental Alliance and with the city of Toronto. What should people who are in, if they are from Toronto or generally, what should folks be focusing on in terms of getting, say, our council to do better? What are the things that you're paying attention to within our city to push for you know, better climate action? So realistically, Toronto needs to do what they've committed to, but they need to do it faster. And so I want to give kudos to everyone who spoke up and and raised their voice to ask for the city to declare a climate emergency in 2019. Actions like that do make a difference. And it did get Toronto to commit to moving faster on their plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And they made their targets more ambitious and changed it to, to, you know, net zero by 2050 or sooner. We were really pushing for that sooner. But so I think that People realistically need to mobilize to ask for action to be even faster now, and specifically to ask for that action to be funded and implemented. We just had a report land a council about how to retrofit every existing building in Toronto. And that's a big piece to bite off. And that strategy had a lot of good actions and good ideas, but it's not funded. And hopefully it will be. When it comes to budget time, that's when people really need to be speaking up and holding their uh, decision makers to account. Now, we also have an election coming up. A city is going to be around this time next year, just kicking into gear for election times. So they're kicking into the gear soon, into gear soonish, but that election would be around fall next year. And so that's a time when you're going to have your candidates out on your doorstep and please be asking them those questions. How are you going to actually make good on your commitments because you do hear a lot of counselors, candidates saying, yeah, I want to move faster on this. But then when it comes to, for example, budget time saying, well, hold on, I don't actually, we don't actually want to take a step forward and and fund this thing. So holding them to account is really important and making sure that the stuff gets followed through with because so often it just feels like we are facing down the barrel of this emergency and our policymakers are, are kind of standing around talking about how to move less slowly towards disaster instead of how to actually completely avert disaster and take big transformative steps that that we know they need to take. And we need to ask for that and we need to hold them to account in doing that. Yeah. The, The slowness that it feels like everyone who's pushing policy or actually enacting policy, it feels like they're weighted down really by, you know, decades of inaction, but also just their sort of inability to imagine a a different world and a different world that we have to get to. The IPCC is like very clear how quickly we have to do this work and how much worse it'll get if we don't. So if folks do want to get involved and support the work that you are doing, how can they do that? So they can check out uh, Toronto Environmental Alliance's website, which I believe is torontoenvironment.org. Yes, that is true. I just Googled it as we were speaking. So check that out. Donating is a great way to do it if you're of the ability to do that. They can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and we are usually out there talking to people in media, et cetera. Whenever there's a you know council decision on something environmental, climate, on waste, things like that. So I uh, can listen for those tidbits as well. And we also have a pretty active Canvas team. So you might even be getting a phone call from us in the near future and be nice to those folks who are phony because they work really hard. 
I think I received one of those phone calls a couple of weeks ago. It was very nice. So thank you so much, Sir Buchanan, the campaign director of the Toronto Environment Alliance for, for joining us. And I want to give you the last word of the show. So if you had one thing to say to our audience across Canada, what would it be? Take it away. I'm going to say that it is sometimes really overwhelming to think about what we have to do to face and address climate change. And I think this is one of those weeks where that was particularly uh, a factor. I felt pretty rattled on Monday. I knew what was coming, but reading those headlines did rattle me anyway. And it also can feel like the pace of political change is so excruciatingly slow and not built for this scale of rapid transformation. But I do think like looking at the rapid transformation that happened around the pandemic and the decisions that were made relatively quickly compared to others shows that it, it is possible to make large-scale decisions very quickly when it's taken seriously, when it's seen as urgent. So I think that that's something that ha- that can happen. And I hope this report is a wake-up call to make those decisions that quickly and to up our game. Just allow ourselves, as you said, to imagine uh, a bigger scale of change and to imagine the, the better lives we can build with that larger scale of, of more transformative change. This is more than just switching out a few light bulbs. This is, this, is, uh, this is changing how we live our lives. And I, for one, welcome some changes in our lives. There's a lot of crises going on that I think could, could stand to be looked at and, and rolled into some of the changes we need to see. It's not easy.